You know, and the day you as an individual or you as a company say, I'm empathic enough, is the day you stop being empathic. Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 370. Today is Sunday the 26th of April 2020. My name is Minter Dial and I'm your host for this podcast. This week's interview is with Belinda Palmer, OBE, founder and CEO of the Empathy Business, which was formerly known as Lady Geek, helping to bring empathy into business. In this conversation with Belinda, we discuss the state of empathy, what it is, how it can help business, and what it is to be empathy in residence in businesses such as Centrica and Mediacom. We also look at her pioneering work on the Empathy Index. You'll find all the show notes on minterdial.com. Please think to rate us if you like the show and don't forget to subscribe in order to catch all the following episodes. Now for the inspiring interview. Belinda Palmer, I am so glad to have you on. Wow, I've been, I feel like I've been tracking you and stalking you online and reading so much about what you are up to. In your own words, Belinda, how would you like to, to introduce yourself? Well, firstly, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm very privileged to be here and talk about empathy. Um, I am, as you say, I am, I kind of think I'm like a company doctor in empathy. So I go into big companies and I look at the organization, I look at the leadership, the communications, and the, even the way they answer the phones and try and bring more empathy into the culture. It's been a brilliant uh, journey, uh, I can only imagine, but I'd like you to tell us more. And specifically what I'd love you to tell us is, is how you got into this and, and maybe what was the moment that sort of sparked this creation and founding of your company? Well, it was an evolution. There was no kind of aha, epiphany moment, I guess, like many people, um, even though I'd like there to have been one. But, um, I used to run a company called Lady Geek which was a much cooler name than the empathy business. It's about getting more women into tech. And I would go into these tech companies. I I worked in advertising for a long time. I was always given the tech accounts because no one wanted them. You know, the IBMs, the HPs, nobody thought tech was sexy then. Um, And I just got an interest in tech. And then I realized that many of the women working in technology were not actually creating products. So, you know, every time I'd go and speak to a tech company, I'd say, okay, great, can I speak to some of the women in the organization? And they would say, well, you can speak to somebody in HR or a PA or someone in marketing. And these companies, so these were big mobile operators, manufacturers of products, they wanted to sell to women, but they weren't actually getting women to create the products or have any input in the design Mm. process. So that company started and that was great. And then we started working with um, Telefonica and a lot of the sales training we were doing was around women. And a lot of the men in the organization said to us, well, why can't we do this? You know, we want to sell more to women. We want more empathic cultures. Why wouldn't they? Um, so that happened. And then also we experienced in companies, we experienced uh, quite a few women who were quite resistant to the concept of 
of anything that was obviously the name was Lady Geek that was female only. Hmm. And these were very successful women. And this was pre Me Too movement. So that was an issue. They didn't want to be ghettoized. And then the final thing was that actually the budgets we were getting, you know, when you talk about women only, I mean, I remember having a conversation with the CEO of a car company and saying to him, we'd like to help you kind of with your strategy for women. And he would say, I remember just like, oh, what that niche audience. I remember him calling women a niche audience. I was like, 51% of the population is not a niche audience. So it was kind of very frustrating. And then I thought about it. And actually, what was at the heart of what we were doing? If we had to crystallize it, it was one word. And that word was empathy. And at a similar time, a bank had decided that they needed to be more empathic. And the business kind of developed with them. And um, it became the empathy business. So, wow, what a great story. And Belinda, that's very similar to me in my path. I can feel like there were layers that came on. And the other thing that I related to and what you're talking about is you were working in an organization with men who wanted to sell to women because that's exactly what I was living, except in a totally different area in cosmetics. That's brilliant. So you, you saw empathy as an opportunity. I was wondering from your perspective, Belinda, and of course you did that amazing uh, empathy index. To what extent do you believe that empathy is, is, is moving up or down and, and how pressing is the need to get it into business? Well, I think in terms of the need to get it into business is greater than ever. I think we need to bring our humanity to work. And what we're seeing with COVID-19 we're seeing a revolution, a, an empathy revolution brewing. Whether that, how that will manifest itself is something I'm exploring. But we're seeing that with people's personal um, and work lives blend in a way that they've never blended before. You know, I've had calls with CEOs who have, you know, shown me, shown me and their top team a bit of their house. They've introduced their pets. They've done they've kind of introduced therapeutic icebreakers um, at the beginning of the meetings. And these are very um, introverted CEOs. So I think what we're seeing is a bigger need and technology is helping us revolutionize that. Now, as you know, I'm a fan of technology, but I've also been a big critic of technology in terms of tech addiction. But what I want to see from technology is it's serving humanity in a way that I feel that it's not now. So I think there's a big opportunity um, with everything that's going on now. We've never needed more empathy than we need now. So you're seeing in this crisis, this opportunity, because we're allowing more <laughs> dogs into our lives, we're allowing more personal elements into the workspace. And, and when you're dealing with CEOs, because you, like I, have been talking to executives about this idea of empathy, to what extent is the, the what, what are the blockers of empathy? And to what extent would you say that it's the inability to access the personal elements of life in business that block a lot of companies and executives in having more empathy in their day-to-day -day operation at work? I think that's totally right. I think for many people, they for many CEOs, and most of them are male, 95% of the FTSE 100 is run by men, um, and 
I think for many men, they don't see vulnerability and humanity as a strength. And for me, there is a lot of strength in vulnerability. There's a lot of strength in empathy. You know, I call empathy a soft power. Um, I, I can't bear the word soft skill. You know, soft mm. skill is feminine. It's not valued in the organization. So I think that there are blocks, there are emotional blocks, there are things that we measure. We are still driven by short-term shareholder expectations. And, you know, how many times is empathy mentioned in a board meeting? Probably not very many still. Um, so what I'm hoping is that this, this kind of crisis, that there will be a bigger catalyst for change. And we know that out of conflict, as you know from the previous books you've written, there are many wonderful things that come out. And that's what I want to transform. I want to transform the world of work. And I'm doing that one kind of empathy nudge at a time. So you're an author of two books, of course, or at least that I know of. Little Miss Geek and the Empathy Era is one I, that, of course, paid more attention to. Getting it to relate to profit. The, the challenge with sort of trying to get change or this soft power into the organization is that it's not something that happens overnight. So how do you go about encouraging empathy in an organization? Well, what are the tools, tricks, and ideas that you have that help an organization to move into being more empathic? Well, you can't manage something if you don't measure it. So we've developed a framework called Embrace, which looks at what does empathy really mean? It's one of those very, you know, soft and fluffy words, but actually you can measure it. And we've broken it down into seven factors. We've looked at things like empowerment. So Embrace is the model. E is for empowerment. M is for meaning. Uh, B is for belonging. R is for reassurance. A is for authenticity. And C is for collaboration. Um, and ease for ethics. Now, that's a, that's a really concrete way of saying, right, if we want to be more empathic as a company, we need to look at where is our biggest empathy gap. So I see my role as a company doctor. We go into the company and say, against our model, against our embrace model, we're going to measure you across these seven factors. And we're going to find out where is your deficit and where is your strength. So for one um, financial organization, empowerment was their biggest weakness. People couldn't be empathic because they weren't empowered to be empathic. Um, so what we did is we focused on empowerment for 18 months. We took their call centers. And what we, we got teams to do is to come up with 10 empathy nudges. And they were really small things. We gave them an empathy fund. So if they were talking to a customer and the customer had an issue and they wanted to resolve it, they had a bit of money that they could use in either thanking the customer or, you know, sending the customer something that was reflective of their life. So we used the deficit to really start making these very small changes across the organization. We also changed the language. So empathy and language is really, really key. So one organization, um, they called their headquarters, you know, um, head office, for example. Now, that head office was serving those people in the branches. Now, head office implies superiority. Mm. So what we did is we changed the, the name to Support Hub. And that was crucial because that then redefined the, the role of head office to support the branches. 
So we look at everything from language. We look at the meeting culture. We look at, we measure the amount of time senior people versus junior people are speaking in meetings. Because you don't want all your senior people talking all the time because you're creating a culture of deference. So we have lots of ways we measure, ways we observe, and we bring that into what we call the diagnostic audit, which is kind of like holding a mirror up in the same way you'd hold it up to yourself. We hold a mirror up to the organization. And that takes about six weeks to really identify where are the things we should work on. And then we'll work with the company for the next year or so to kind of make those changes. Well, I love that embrace idea. Of course, it's a beautiful word as well. And uh, I couldn't help but think that the empowerment idea that this team brought up, first of all, I, the fact that it's broken down into little pieces, that is so symptomatic of a properly empathic organization because it, it counts in the little things. And in the way you explain the empowerment ideas is this sort of agency fund. You gave them agency to operate as adults. And, and, you get, and, you, and that really is just about understanding how we operate. I think that's true. And I think many big organizations, even smaller ones, actually, they operate a very parent-child culture. And that is very detrimental to innovation, to empathy and empowerment and belonging. And that is a real issue. And it's understanding, really understanding how does that parent culture manifest itself, even right down to, and you'll think this is crazy, but right down to the rules they have in the bathroom. I mean, I have been in offices literally tell you how to wash your hands. You know, so this is how you pee. <laughs> yeah, yeah, whatever. You know, they will tell you how to wash their hands. Now, obviously, during COVID, we, we need that advice. That's true. This is pre-COVID. Um, they will tell you how to wash your hands in the most patronizing kind of way. And it all feeds into this very much command and control. Now, no one wants to work like that anymore. The next generation, and if you're managing at work, you're managing five different generations. We see the younger generations, they come in, they won't put up with that parent-child culture. So we use empathy as a tool, as a catalyst to put a new lens on the organization. And we very much, as you say, you know, we, we very much focus on the nudge. I call it the nudge taken from behavioral science. And in one bank, we've looked at 42 different nudges. And that aggregate impact is where you see the shifts in culture. And you need to measure that. You really do, because you can't manage something unless you measure it. I, I totally love that. And the fact you break it down into language and behaviors, that's what really culture is along with the rights and other things like that. that that's brilliant, um, Melinda. I really, I really like that. Um, when, when you talk about, well, let me just break into one other thing which you spark when you talk about the parent-child culture. In, in, in my exploration of empathy, I've, I've now come across the different thoughts and let's say schools of empathy. And there's something that strikes me as, as very challenging, which we're particularly experiencing now, which is, this what's called the close communications bias in the academic circles. And so it turns out that sometimes it's a lot easier to have a fresh slate and listen deeply to a stranger than it is to your nearest and dearest. So here we are in close quarters and all we are communicating with our, our nearest, the closest. And when some companies talk about creating a family, 
you end up with baggage, longer relationships, and it becomes harder because you're, you're bringing in some context and, and sometimes bad blood into your moment when you should be with empathy, listening expressly to the emotions and thoughts and experiences that are happening now and, and try to remove your ego, Excuse me. bless you, and your past experiences into the listening that you're doing. So is the question, what role does clarity and distance play in? Well, it's looking at the, it's looking at this notion of parent-child in a business, which really means that close to family, you know, this notion that we're actually together for many hours, therefore we get to know each other. It's not like a stranger. We're at work in a different context, but we kind of do get to know each other as much as we can you know, much as we know each other and, and the, the barriers that go into business, but we, we have these longer term relationships. And as we do in work, the challenge then becomes to strip out our ego and let's say past baggage and, and know how to listen freshly to someone we've known for a long time. And I think it's hard. I think, you know, list, active listening, which is a key part of empathy, is exhausting. Hmm absolutely exhausting and there are going to be moments when you you know you're not good at it. i'm not good at it you know and there are moments when you're going to be really good at it i think the thing is you've got to make it part of the culture you've got to and you've got to reward people for it because often what i see in companies is they'll have empathy as a value but then they won't reward against it they'll reward against the delivery value or the agile value so it's not just about having it and talking about it. It really is about measuring it and recognize it through the recognition system. And that's one thing I've done with a company I'm working with at the moment, actually. We've looked at their five values and we looked at, and, and they have a recognition system where you choose one of the values and you recognize someone in the company. And the CEO now has committed to recognizing 10 people every week. Now that is a nudge. But that has made a huge difference. You're sitting there, you work in customer operations, you get an email from the CEO just saying, you've been recognized this week. Um, but when we looked a bit deeper, we thought, brilliant, that's a fantastic nudge. But then we looked a bit deeper. He was recognizing all of the things that were about delivery. So a lot of the, if you really are serious about empathy, if you're serious about really doing this well, you have to break it down, but you have to look at every different aspect of it because it's complicated you know and the day you as an individual or you as a company say i'm empathic enough is the day you stop being empathic we are work in progress you have to keep going and you have to keep trying and it's hard it's really hard and sometimes it's exhausting yeah it's are so great and to your point belinda and certainly i'm sure <laughs> behind what you were just saying is something that I felt, aside from being a white male, which usually makes me, or I say generalizations being what they are, a little bit more challenged in this compartment, uh, having written a book on empathy. And then sometimes my wife or someone in my family will say, well, mentor, that wasn't very empathic of, from coming from you. Um, and, you know, it is, as you yeah. say, uh, a challenge to have that intense listening. Because the listening isn't just the words coming out of your mouth. It's about the, the tweaks around the, the, the mouth. It's the, the way the eyes, the body language, the hands, the, and all the other things that happen when you're listening that allow you to really understand what the other person's feeling and thinking. 
It is all of that. And a lot of the exercises we do are back to back. So you don't, so you can practice empathy without having those cues. Um, but the other thing is we, we only develop empathy skills. So the workshops we run are empathy in conflict. So it's very easy to show empathy to somebody you like. Or if you want something, if you're going for a job interview, or if you find someone in a bar incredibly attractive, you will, all your empathy skills will naturally come out. Or if you're working with someone and they've got similar, you know, similar age kids, you've got a connection. The real challenge and where I believe we make the biggest progress, and that's where we focus on, is when you're stressed and you're in a conflict situation or you don't like someone, you've just been bollocked by your boss, um, or you feel really, you've had a really crap sleep. Those are the times that you really need to show empathy the most. And that's where we focus. So we look at language, we look at skills, we look at how do you develop that, what phrases should you avoid, all those language things, all those leadership things, all the way you, develop, you set up your meetings to actually look at empathy and conflict because that is where you will make the most progress. And that is really, really key. I love the way you say that, Belinda. I mean, I talk about in my book that there's the two empathy killers, the biggest empathy killers in business are stress and lack of time or just time yes. in general. And so conflict is, is something that sort of brings that to a head. And uh, it's, it's very patently the most difficult time. And, and how do you be empathically quick or quickly empathic? You know, and, yeah, and when that's you're, a great question. your lizard brain is going on and, you know, I've got to get the numbers in and, and oh, you know, there's just, there's, there's my career over your career and, and, and we, we lose the plot very quickly. We lose the plot because also physiologically, so cortisol is our stress hormone and oxytocin is our love or our empathy hormone. So the fact is that cortisol overrides the oxytocin. So what happens is exactly as you say, we're stressed. So our overriding is our cortisol, which makes us very difficult, near and impossible to be empathic. So the biggest thing, the thing that I work on with companies and CEOs is holding up a mirror, is the self-awareness. So you might be, you know, you might have just said something, I did this at the weekend, said something completely unempathic to my niece, but the recognition of it, the self-reflection of it, the working through it after is so key. So if you can really be self-aware, and that's the thing with an organization, you know, it's like if you came into my family, you would be, oh my God, why are you doing this? Like what? Oh my God, I can't believe you did that. You're shouting and la la la. It's totally dysfunctional. And it's the same with an organization. It's very hard to know what your dysfunctions is unless you're outside of it. Mm -hmm. I think it's kind of your lucidity and clarity question from before. You need that activity to sort of, to look at, right, these are the empathy deficits. These are the strengths. This is where we're going to put money, people, and time. When you do your work, Belinda, do you talk about things like effective empathy? Do you, are you of the school that believes that these are two things? Because let's say there's a group of people, and I tend to focus personally more on cognitive empathy within a work environment. But what's your regard with regard to em emotional empathy or effective empathy? Well, I think, you know, the way that that's often described is that psychopaths um, can, you know, they can use it and, and they can understand um, how somebody's feeling and they can use that to their own advantage. 
whereas cognitive empathy is understanding how that person feels and I guess different parts of your brain, your mirror neurons light up and it's a very different type of empathy when you feel someone's pain. I think for me, the biggest thing I see in organizations, I don't see that so much. I know that 4% of CEOs have psychopathic tendencies, which is four times the national average. Um, but I don't see that. What I see is the difference between sympathy and empathy. I think that is a bigger issue than effective and cognitive or emotional empathy, because what I see is a lot of leaders confusing sympathy with empathy. Sympathy is feeling pity for someone, you know, coming into a really sad story and I'm like, oh, that's so sad. Oh my God, I feel so sorry for you. That is what my niece calls a pity party. What I'm talking about is, right, you tell me something, I'm going to work with you, we're going to work on this together, it's empathy in action. I'm not going to feel sorry for you, I'm going to listen actively, then I am going to work through a solution with you. And what I see in meetings, what I see is people feeling sorry for people. Now this very much ties into the uh, parent-child culture, because, you know, it has to be equal. You know, if you're at work, you are two adults, and the relationship between you has to be equal. So a lot of the work I do is moving people from sympathy to empathy. And that's where I think there's a big, big misunderstanding in business. Yeah, it just makes me think that behind sympathy is a, a sense of condescension at some level. It's yeah. like, I'm feeling sorry for you. Well, I'm above that. Look, are you, woe is you. And, and, and sometimes it can anyway be perceived as being condescending, whether or not the intention is there. So, um, Belinda, you, you've written this, you, you published this article in the Harvard Business Review, and I don't know how many times I've seen it quoted uh, about the empathy index that you, you did back in 2016 or 15. Fantastic work. It, it helped really uh, illuminate a lot of people about how empathy can be an, an effective shareholder winning tool. Um, is it something, what was the learning that you got from doing that study? And please, when are you doing it again? Well, um, I got a lot of learning, not all of it good, I have to say. Uh, I don't know whether I should say this, but one of the companies that came the lowest in the list tried to sue us. Oh my gosh. <laughs> ironic because they were a massive global oil company to a small business called the empathy business so mm. so you learn a lot uh, <laughs> that's why they're at the bottom yes well that was kind of our response um but it picked up by so many different publications yeah. uh, so i've i've never said that before so you are the first minty on your podcast a scoop a scoop that information um what we did was it, it was incredibly useful because it puts the numbers and it, it, it's so funny. Like when you rank businesses against each other, the whole alpha, like where are, where are our competitors? You know, if you're in the cosmetics, where's the, who's the first in there? So it really generated a lot of competition. The ranking was great and it kind of brought empathy up the agenda. Um, the way we measured it was imperfect, actually. You know, what we did is we took a different load of variables. So we got inputs from Glassdoor. We looked at carbon emissions. We looked at diversity on the board. We took in a whole range of how people felt in the organization. They were public metrics. Yeah. So you can't really know until you're in an organization and you've seen the CEO and you, you're working with them. You don't really know what's going on. So there was a level of... Um, imperfection to the index but it was a good first start 
Um, the reason that we just haven't carried it on is because uh, it was very difficult to get some of the metrics that I wanted. So one of the things I wanted to bring in was the amount of tax paid. I spent a long time with the consultancies, tax consultancies, trying to get the data from them, which they would not share. So I kind of felt I really need to do this, but I need to do it with some metrics that I just couldn't get hold of, despite my determination, despite my wanting to transform the world of business through empathy. Um, but I, I, I would like to go back to it. Well, thank you for sharing that. I, I certainly appreciated it for its ability and I, I, I use it regularly. And I do, I do caution that it's not perfect. I mean, I think that's natural. No one knows exactly what's going on inside these companies, but I do think it really set off a, a big, good spark and, and the right type of conversation. You, quickly, you are empathy in residence at a couple of companies, Centrica and Mediacom. Empathy in residence. I know you said your doctor empathy, but what's it? Empathy in residence. It sounds like you know, like you when you're doctor, you can be a resident in residence. Is that how? I'm you... not an actual doctor, by the way. <sighs> I'm, I, of course, I, of course, I get that. <laughs> no, I get that. I don't but, want to claim something no, no, I'm no. not. No, no, it's, it's, it's just. But the notion of empathy in residence. What does that entail inside a company? What it means is that I am actually there. So I think a lot of consultancies, they, you know, they've got great advice. They, they kind of, you know, write it up and then sprinkle some dust and then go away. What I want to do is this empathy in action. So it really is rolling my sleeves up. So I spend a lot of time, um, you know, sitting in the canteen, uh, talking to receptionists, um, observing meetings. I want to be part of the organization. I don't think you can change something by just looking at it from a helicopter view and, you know, thinking that you're more intelligent than the people that are in there because you're not. They are the experts. They know the business far better than I do. So the empathy in residence is actually I'm in situ a couple of days a week at different companies and I really then work with them to solve the issues. And the other thing is I think it's important, really important that they they trust me because you can't really build any kind of empathy with someone that you don't see or speak to frequently. So I also, I like to do it. I think it really creates trust and um, a level of humanity. Um, a lot of the clients I work with are friends. They've become friends and that's like Well, it. kudos, I'm, I'm going to say to Centric and Mediacom for opening the kimono to you. Because that, I mean, I, you know, for having run big business, I can exactly feel the value that that would provide but i also know that the vulnerability if i actually have a culture that's not good and and that could be a very taxing idea to have some sort of external person looking at how all these things are happening so that that that, that really is very powerful belinda last question for you unless you want to comment on that but you're an activist on a number of great causes you did mention women in tech um, you also want to be make the world and a business uh, more, more tech and, and becoming more responsible. How can anyone who's listening tag in, uh, help you in any of these two causes that I talked about? You can call out a lack of empathy when you see it at work. That would be great. You can share your stories with us. You can follow us on Twitter at the Empathy Biz, B-I-Z. Uh, we're new to Instagram at Belinda Palmer, so you can follow me on Instagram um, and get in touch. And I think what you're doing, Minter, is you're building 
empathy circles, you're driving the empathy agenda, and we need people like you to kind of bring us all together in this space to really drive this agenda because this is not a nice to have. We need empathy more than ever. We need it in the workplace and we need to work with companies to show them how to do it in the best possible way. And it's not some soft, oofy-doofy skill that people talk about. It, it is a, actually a, a motor of motivation, engagement and results. Absolutely. It all comes down to the measurement and results. Embrace your way, Belinda. Thank you so much for coming on. I look forward to following you and helping you in any way I can. And uh, do follow, track uh, Belinda Palmer and her empathy biz um, to all the listeners. Thanks a lot, Belinda. Thank you so much, Minta. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minta Dialogue Show. You'll find the show notes and other blog posts on mintodial.com. If you enjoyed the show, please head over to iTunes to give a rating and review. And to finish, here's a song I wrote with Stephanie Singer, A Convinced Man.
My name is Cindy Burnett, and each week I interview at least two traditionally published authors on my podcast, Thoughts from a Page. We talk spoiler-free about their books, so you can listen whether you have read the book or not. And then we delve into things that you most likely won't hear about anywhere else. The importance of the cover design, why they included various aspects of the story, personal details about both the books and the author's lives, and so much more. You can find the podcast on every major platform and learn more about it on my website, thoughtsfromapage.com. Thanks so much for checking it out.